The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in September 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we welcome B.D. Wong, who certainly television audiences know from his work for many seasons on Law & Order SVU as the forensic psychiatrist, also on the HBO series Oz as the uh, prison priest, Father Ray Mukata. Theater people have known B.D. Wong for many years, and just running through some of his recent and other work, currently starring in a one-man show, Herringbone, at the McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey, just last year, directing his first production, The Yellow Wood, recently in the revival of Pacific Overtures. In 1999, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and the show for which he first really burst onto the Broadway scene, M. Butterfly. We'll get to all that in a little bit. But, B.D., welcome to Downstairs Thank Center. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's talk a little bit about Herringbone. In a publicity released, it's described as a ghost story with a vaudeville twist, a musical with a dash of murder. Tell yes. us more about the show for the audiences who haven't well, seen it. Well, you know, this is the the interesting, ongoing um, challenge of marketing a very unique and bizarre show. It is a one-person show in which a, a, a one actor um, enacts and tells a very tall kind of allegorical tale. And the tale itself is, um, I think, loosely based on painful events in his life. But whether or not the the tall tale actually occurred is up for the audience to decide. And so, really, it isn't the facts of the tall tale itself, which includes the kind of possession of an eight-year-old boy and and um, the revenge of uh, a kind of a revenge murder story. Um, it's really not specifically those events that make the evening complete for me, anyway. Uh, I believe it's really watching the actor perform the material and watching the actor's relationship to the story itself, which is what makes the evening um, really potentially great. And so I always try to uh, not scare people away with this kind of bizarre tale of of possession and, and murder, but kind of talk a little bit about the emotional life of the show, which is really colorful and and interesting to me as an actor. And you play 11 different characters, 10 of which have bodies, and one kind of doesn't? Well, two of them share a body, body, seeing as how one is actually possessing the other. And one uh, one of them is the the, the spirit, if you will. I mean, he's never called a spirit, but he's the the essence of 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 a former vaudeville performer who's been murdered prior to the show starting, prior to the story. And so he's come back to get avenge his murderer, and he does so by taking over the body of an eight-year-old boy. Um, we discover this in a very kind of um, natural way. In other words, we don't know any of this before the show starts. We discover this boy seems to have interesting talents, and why he has those talents evolves throughout the show. And then throughout the show, the, the performer himself comments on the on the on the material and the and the action of it, and and seems to have some kind of personal connection to the themes of it, which is kind of what the whole thing adds up to in the end. The why of why somebody performs 11 roles instead of watching 11 actors playing the 11 roles. And the uh, specific uh, relationship of of the actor, not only to the material, but to performing itself. It's a little bit of a commentary on on performing and, and, and getting out on stage and taking the leap of 
of um, putting yourself out there and stuff. Herringbone is not a new show. It's now about 27 years old. Yes. Yet over those years, there have only been a handful of major productions. The original production of Playwrights Horizons with David Rounds, a production at Hartford Stage in the early 90s with Joel Gray. Why is it that B.D. Wong has starred in three of the major productions of Herringbone going back over a roughly 15-year period? Well, I, you know, it's just, I, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, this will be one of very few shows which I I connected to in a way that that has has just forced me to follow a long path with it. I think one thing was that when I discovered the show and I saw the David Rounds production at Playwrights and that's what began my fascination for the show and my obsession with the show David Rounds was absolutely magnificent in the production and I was a very young actor learning all about playing different characters and 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 you know came to New York fresh to to be an actor and saw this production and I just have uh followed it to various theaters and never really quite been satisfied with the production so whereas maybe in other in other cases I might just let it go the, the two productions prior to this I always just wanted a little bit more and this is really the first production at McCarter that I feel is is fully servicing the performance in a way that allows me to do the play properly, and I'm thrilled f- with that and love that because of it. It's 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 taken on many different personalities as I've done it the three different times that I've done productions of it. Well, can you talk about sort of your growth with it and and what you've found in in each incarnation? Sure, um, I. Uh, Hopefully it doesn't need to be said that I, I feel like I've grown and changed as a person and as a performer over the years. And that really invariably changes your relationship to the craft itself and and how you approach things. And, and so on the rare occasions where you actually reinvest in the same material, say, you know, this is probably... I played Linus and Charlie Brown twice, once when I was like 14 years old and once when I was <laughs> something else. <laughs> and, and you know, of course, I had a very different relationship to the character, the comic strip, the, the essence of the, of, the, of the humor and all of that as my body grew and my, 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 I changed, you know. And so that's no different with Herringbone. At Herringbone, I, I ri- originally kind of saw it as a great challenge and a great opportunity and a play gr- playground for an actor to immerse himself. And then I, as, as, as the productions have become more um, involved and complex, I've addressed the real themes of the play and taken them to heart in a way that I didn't originally. And so I think I find that much more satisfying as a grown-up to to talk about what the play is really about to me and why I feel like I like doing it, aside from the kind of pyrotechnical aspects of it. Well, this production of McCarter is directed by Roger Rees, who yes. is himself an actor. Yes. Does working with a director who is also an actor, does that inform you? Does that help you in oh, interpreting? It was absolutely essential to me. And it was a great fit for me. And when Roger became artistic director of the Williamstown Theater Festival, and I brought him the material last year, and he agreed to not only produce the show for the festival, but to direct the production, I was the luckiest actor in the world because there were two things. One is that he completely understands the 
the nuances of performer of performing and being a performer that would require him to allow me to allow him to inspire the performance to direct the performance and in, and secondly he he was able to kind of collaborate with me on aspects of the production that I that I felt very strongly about I'd done it so many times that I couldn't just bring the material to a director and just say whatever you want I really couldn't I was too invested in it I had learned t- way too much in the two uh other than the other times that I'd done it. So by the time I came to him, I said, well, I see, I'd love you to direct the production and I, 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 as a performer, give you all of my trust and I do have a few things that I think that directorially can really help me as the performer if you can get behind them. So we had a lot of talking before we actually agreed to go for it and we were on the same page about it and so that was really helpful to me. Um, to the point where when we came to McCarter to do it a second time at a different theater, the we we were able to kind of upgrade the production in a way that that um, gave me a lot of the production support that I really needed as the performer. Um, very simple little things that I I said to him, I felt were really important for the multi-character nature of the performance and the the seamless nature of the of the the way the story is being told something as simple as saying i think that i need to have a doorway in the show of course now we have a doorway in the in the show that which i never have had and i've always kind of fantasized about the opportunities that a simple doorway on a stage can present to a single actor the doorway can act as a portal between time and space and place and it can also act as a um a linear a field through which the actor can pass and transform, be something on one side of it and something else on the other side of it. And something as simple as that has tra- transformed the entire production to a completely different place. And and it's part of what I have found really exciting about this production because it serves me as the performer in a way that um, I haven't felt before. And so it, it, it frees my hands in a way to um, to really get into the story, into the characters. And so as a result, the characters are deeper and the, the story is a little bit more resonant. To use an awful analogy, <laughs> acting is usually a team sport. Yes. In this case, you're a marathon runner. Yes. How does it feel to be out there by yourself, yes. even with all the different characters? Yes, it's very interesting. It still needs to have the semblance of being a team sport, and you are just all the t- people on the team. There are two things that I've noticed. One thing is that it's really interesting. Well, first of all, there's nothing better than being in a hot ensemble that's crackling where everyone knows what they're doing and everyone trusts everyone and everyone inspires one another nightly with 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 you know not doing the same thing and and how that can be a wonderful experience um that can also be fraught with the amazingly intricate and complicated nuances of personal people's personalities and so you're lucky you know the luckiest actor in the world to be in an ensemble with people you respect and love and trust and all of that and very often there's a couple of you know bad eggs in the in the in the in the dozen so what you're telling us is you like your cast i I, i'm able to i like my cast and i'm able to create 
the inspiration that I would fantasize about in an ensemble situation. I can give myself the motivation that I would ask for if I wasn't getting it for it from another actor. Hmm. And so I can say, well, how tonight, how is this scene playing? Well, she's a little, um, she's feeling a little, um, I don't know, saucy tonight. And so he's going to, the other character playing the scene with her, is going to pick up on that and use it and do something with it. It might not happen every night. And so it's not that different from a really good ensemble. I just get to make all the choices. You can change up the performance on your own characters. Yes, and then I can also say, yes, and I don't have to, nobody's going to complain about it. Nobody's (laughs) going to go to the stage manager and say, please tell him to stop doing that. Um, It's really fascinating. And I only do it, I mean, I don't do it in any great... um, uh, in, in, a, in a huge way. I do it in a way that helps to keep it really fresh. Hmm. And it's really fun to do that. And, and it, and it, and it ha- allows it to be extremely spontaneous and extremely uh, present and in the moment. And one thing that I think this production brings that other productions that I've done have not had is a real sense of spontaneity and of being in the moment um, with the actor who's telling the story. So the actor is kind of telling it in the moment, and, and you're aware that this play, which ostensibly takes place in 1929, is being told and we're kind of being taken back to that time. But there's always an undercurrent of what's happening in the moment now, which I think is vital for the piece to resonate. And we haven't really mentioned this, but it's a musical. And you, it's a musical, you, yeah. You, you do song and dance numbers in yes, this. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of full, full access, full... Um, it it really is in, in in any in a way that I haven't really experienced in other ways in my career, a way of being tapped out completely. I mean, I don't think there's anything that I can't that I can do that isn't in the play, <laughs> that isn't in the production. You know, you throw everything that you can do into it, and and you um, it becomes a kind of a, a a Whitman sampler of your talents because it it asks so much of you, and. Um, it is a it is a musical written with a very traditional structure. If you were to look in the program and look at the list of songs and and hear a synopsis of the play or read the liner notes from whatever CD there might be, you would read the plot and the story and the and the song progression and the the uh, character progression and the uh, the plot progression through the music very traditionally. It's very tightly written in that way. And what's just different about it is that one person plays all the different parts, sings all the different songs. Even if the song's a duet, the person is singing. Sings them in, in different voices for the different characters. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And you also, quite literally, never leave the stage during the whole evening. Is that that's right. right. Yeah. Well, not much would be happening, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you've spoken about the fact that the earlier productions left you unsatisfied. In one is, way or another, is, you know, there's always something to be satisfied by. I didn't walk away terribly grumpy, but I, but I, I, I thought, what if? And oh, next time, if I can do it again, if I could just do it again, ta ta ta. Sorry to interrupt. But no, but so the, the obvious question is: you've got a few weeks to go with the McCarter, but yeah. at this point, do you feel you've you've nailed it, or is this always going to be something you want to go back to? Does this become your your Hello, signature Dolly. role? Yeah. Because it is a role that can be played by an actor at any age. Yes, and it, it gets seem. actually gets better the older that I get. And I, I really fought with the when I first brought to brought it to them when I was nineteen years old. They said, "Well, you're a little young," and I thought, "No, no, no. There's no such thing as that." You know, I was I was. Um, 
I was one of those kind of actors. And, and, and they were absolutely right. They said, when, when you get to be a certain age, you'll really understand it better and you'll, it'll, it'll become deeper. And they were absolutely right about that. And I think it would continue to get deeper. Um, I do feel that I'm very close to have finding the ultimate production of it. I don't know if I should ever I find it healthy to, to feel like you have arrived. But even just now, I've, I've, I'm thinking of sending an email to Roger about a particular moment in the play, which I think could be greatly improved with a certain uh, re-timing and re, re in, you know. And I want to ask him what his opinion is of that. And that is, it's a pivotal moment in the show, um, but it's something that I would want to tinker with if we were to continue on. And and that's always fun part of the process is going out there every night and saying, okay, so this really feels like it works. This feels like it works less so. Why is that? What could be done? And when you have a light bulb that goes off in your head, you just can't turn it off. You have to do something with that idea. And so uh, the, the first thing I would do is to talk to Roger about what he thought of it. Hmm. Let's let's talk with you about the early days. Sure. About, about how you got started. You were born and raised in San Francisco. Yes. And you did a lot of theater when you were in high school. Yes. So how, how did you get interested in theater? Were your parents theater people? Or? No, absolutely not. My dad was a theater. Um, l- I guess he was a theater lover. He hardly ever went to the theater. He couldn't afford to go to the theater. It was a big deal for him to get tickets to go to see something. But he certainly listened to cast recordings. You know, at, at that time when I was really young and when he was a younger man, as as you guys know, the popular music was a was part and parcel of what Broadway was. And there was a direct connection between popular music and, and Broadway. And so it, it isn't so surprising that my dad was listening to the real-to-real uh, recordings that he had made of um, Oklahoma and The Music Man and The King and I, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, uh, The Man of La Mancha, uh, My Fair Lady, the, the big hits of the day. And uh, they, I heard them I memorized them from hearing him play them over and over again. And I developed a love for musicals through that. And by the time I got to high school, I was um, interested in music. I sang when I was in elementary school, and that led to my learning how to play the violin. And a teacher came into my class when I was an underclassman in in, in high school and said, we're looking for people to play in the the school orchestra for the, the school musical. And someone sitting next to me, who was a rather flamboyant young woman, who had whose parents had been in a theater company and she was played small parts in their theater company had said oh no the action isn't really in the orchestra but the action's up on the stage you really mm-hmm. should try that and i was very skeptical and deep, deeply relieved that someone was going to kind of make me do it because i kind of wanted to see what that was like and i that began a really wonderful and um meaningful relationship with a high school drama teacher who I met at that first tryout and who promised me not a leading part in the show, but, you know, as an underclassman, if you come every day, I'll give you a part here and there. And I did exactly that. I was there like a puppy dog, and I was the cop, and I was the... What, 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 know, was, what was the part? What was the show? Dolls. It's guys and Dolls. Yeah, so I was the, <laughs> Good way to the voice of the, the gangster on the telephone and the, the MC of the club, and I was all, you know, it strung together a, a, a kind of part that came from all these bit parts and caught the bug, whatever that is, at that time. And then enjoyed a crucial relationship with her, which um, led to my taking seriously the craft as something to do with one's life, which was a concept that was really 
way out of out of left field for me and my parents. And she she played an instrumental role in encouraging me to to explore it. And that was really um, something that that steered the course of my life in a way that you couldn't even imagine if it hadn't happened where I would be or what I would be doing right now. Was she encouraging you to do this professionally beyond Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was not saying, absolutely, you should do this. She was opening the door for me to the possibility, which was all a kid needs at that point uh, with a lot, you know, with there's a lot of energy of, of door closing around you. If you do have that one influential person who says, no, it's really not an impossibility. I can't tell you that it's absolutely viable. I can only tell you that you really have something that you could explore and, and, and it's worth doing. And that's what I did and that's where I, why I'm sitting here with you now. Had this teacher not encouraged you, what do you think you'd be doing today? <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, I like to think that I would have found my way. And I would like to think that this means enough to me, which it does, uh, means a great deal to me, that I would have found my way in, by hook or by crook. Um, we all know that there's no way to know. And, and, and uh, I don't think I would have been able to stick out my parents' wishes to become a lawyer or a doctor. I don't think I could have made it. I don't think it would have was in the cards for me. However, I was always creative in some way. I had talked about being a, um, like a graphic designer or, a, you know, maybe I'd be like a, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Maybe I'd work in animation mm-hmm. or maybe I... Would I don't know. Maybe, I'm not really sure. You, you can never know. And I don't maybe haven't specifically thought about it on purpose. But um, I can't say for sure that I would be doing this. But I have a strong inkling that I would. So you went off to college. But from what I read, college wasn't entirely for you. No, and you went wasn't. to study theater specifically. Yes. And I don't really encourage people to drop out of school. I do a lot of visits at colleges and talk to kids at colleges about, in specific, in many cases, the conundrum of the, the dilemma of of your parents' wishes and your own wishes when it comes to choosing your career and your major and all of that stuff. And so I understand this is a really loaded topic. I was really lucky to have this relationship with a teacher in high school. She took me literally by the hand to the the, the local college where I was enrolled and said, this person needs a mentor. And there was an attempt there at kind of looking out for me, but I never enjoyed the care and the the kind of one-on-one relationship with with a teacher or a professor that I had with her. I got lost in the department. I was not I was not um, respected there at all in a way that was very odd to me. You know, I was a little full of myself, and I knew that I had something. I mean, I, 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 I probably was a little too full of myself and probably could have used a, a little bit of a cutting down in some way. But I also knew that I deserved to have the opportunity to explore the craft and to experience the learning process that was crucial for a person with the potential that I had at that point. And I didn't have it. I didn't get it. I didn't get cast in anything. There was, I think, a racial thing going on. And I think it was, there was a kind of, well, we're, well, you're not really right for this. So, and, you know, the being right for it didn't really transcend traditional ec- educational um, uh, openness, meaning they were very literal about the way they cast things there. They did Brigadoon and they cast all the people with the red hair and the 
the leading parts. I mean, literally, they did this, and, and that was where I knew, that was the moment I knew I was in the wrong place. Well, it was also an era before the so-called colorblind casting, which nowadays is yes, not but, so much of a concern as it may have been then. But I played Harold Hill in high school. Uh-huh. I played um, Ponty Finch in high school because of this teacher's vision. Well, that yeah, that was the teacher had the vision, but the, the well, college the, apparently didn't. That's, that's what it absolutely sounds like. right. Yeah. yeah, but it didn't ne- necessarily need to be a trend of the times. Uh-huh. It could have been someone understanding that a person had talent, and what can we do with that talent? Well, then, if you want to be a um, a symptom of the times, or uh, or want to want to use the uh, trends, uh, in, in, you know, of the times and uh, employ them, then do something that I can do. Then, then freaking do flower drum song if you want to go all the way down scraping the bottom of the barrel Mm. uh you know and give me that opportunity if in fact you can see that it it was there and i had the you mean i don't mean to toot my own horn i just had the potential that other kids didn't have i i had at least equal potential that other kids that were getting opportunities had so you drop out of school how do you make your way? How do you realize that potential? I mean, how long were you in school yes. for? I was in school for a semester and a half, I think. Wow. So, oh, so no, no, a year and a half. Okay. Sorry. But still, you're about 19 and, and you've decided, yes. okay, this isn't for me. How do you start forging a career? I went to New York. I just took all the money that I had saved and I saved a fair amount of money. And I decided I was saving money to go to New York when I got out of college. And I just went to New York, and I decided that there was a way to learn, if you will, on the street, which is what I did. And I learned a different way, and I learned a way that was right for me. And I learned without the structure and the um, programming and the um, mentorship that um, I was hoping to get in in, in university. And... Um, it was wonderful. <laughs> it was a really interesting in, um, exercise in my own independence. Um, and I, I just kind of did it cold turkey. I, I went right to the backstage and the, and the what was called show business newspapers that came out every Thursday. And I auditioned for every single thing that was remotely, uh, that they wouldn't boot me out the door if I walked in. And I learned how to audition by doing it. I learned simply um, how to walk into a room, which is is actually a huge part of the um, whole essence of of being an auditioning actor. And I dare say I learned things that my friends, who all stayed in college, weren't able to learn. Nowadays, they have a little bit more uh, career preparatory stuff in, in universities. But at the time, they didn't have audition class. They didn't have... You know how to present yourself, um, that kind of thing. They they weren't really concentrating on that. They were concentrating on tasks like clowning and dialects, and um, you know you would you would work and you would as an underclassman you would put in time in the scene shop or in the costume shop, and you would go through all of the tasks and and things. But you never learned how to be a professional actor hmm. ever. In Still now, from what I can tell in universities, there's very little of that. And it's fascinating that it's so missing from the curriculum um, because that's the thing that 
with just a little bit of guidance, you can really, really gain a lot of confidence from. You talk about learning how to walk into an audition room. Yes. Does, does that make a difference, the way you walk into a room? Do they notice you then? Or, I mean... What, walking what, what, into an audition room is, a, is, this, is the same thing as walking into any job interview. Uh-huh. So walking into a job interview with your tail between your legs saying, I'm sorry for being here, but I just mm-hmm. thought I'd try it, is not the way to get a job. And so uh, what I mean by walking into a room is presenting yourself as a professional person and realizing that that's part of it. Um, something as simple as, the, uh, the, what I, as I described the concept of apologizing for oneself is not welcome at all in an audition room or nor in any kind of job interview situation and um, you know the I learned that the hard way the long and hard way by just doing it enough times until maybe somebody said oh you know you really don't have to apologize for being here you can you're, you know hold your head high or whatever it was that they said and and so that was just um that, that, that I think that is an important part of it. Yeah, and that is something that they don't teach in in college. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we want to come fairly quickly to talking about and butterfly, but before we do, from this time you left school, you're learning, you're teaching yourself how to be an auditioner. What kind of work were you getting in uh-huh. this period? <laughs> oh wow. Well, I I um, where do I start with that? Well, I was doing a lot of coursework in musicals, and I was doing dinner theater, um, chorus work in musicals, um, small parts in musicals, and um, doing extra work in television movies. And um, um, I had a day, I had a survival job as the assistant house manager of the roundabout and uh, also was a messenger dispatcher and all that stuff. But the kind of stuff that I was getting was the kind of stuff that I felt comfortable with you know, it wasn't until M. Butterfly that I really got real with myself as an Asian American person, that I could really um, understand my three-dimensional identity and that my background was as much of, a, of an asset to my personality and to my what I brought to the table as anything. And uh, because of the industry and the way that the industry kind of has a tendency to exclude, I... I kept that um, part of my self-esteem at bay for a long time. And so as a result, I was always putting myself up for these kind of all-American type musical roles. Specifically, the most, um, the easiest place to find this part was at an, uh, was at an American theme park hmm. in an amusement park in a musical singing and dancing show. So when I got off the bus, train, plane from, from uh, uh, you know, uh, San Francisco, I got five theme parks right off the top of the, right off the bat, because I was the perfect person. I was a really um, outgoing, all-American, but ethnic kid. And so I exploited their, um, their, ex- their wanting to exploit the kind of multi-diverse they, they, they could take it to a certain point, the, the multi-racial thing. And they did it by putting kids of all colors in, in, in musical reviews. And I, I, I got five jobs at different theme parks. You know, it, it is a great thing that the theme parks do this. But for me, it was a little bit kind of a washed-down version of who I was. Um, it was who I was comfortable being with at that point. I was much more comfortable embracing the American part of me than I was the Asian part of me. But that brings me to the obvious question. 
you go in for M Butterfly, yeah, which is playing. I hope for for anybody who's listening who doesn't know the show, I guess stop listening now. <laughs> but you're you're playing a character who is spending much of their life pretending to be a woman, yeah. which you are not. It certainly was an explicitly Asian role. Yes. What was the experience for you of going in for that and getting that role? It was life-changing. And it was life-changing not because of the audition itself, but because of simply reading the script, which was an experience that I had never had up until that point. I was studying with an acting teacher. I had moved to L.A. I got my first chorus job in a Broadway show, which was the L.A. company of La Caja Fall. I was a singer in the booth, a booth singer, and a kind of onstage, like a fisherman in different parts. In in that company, this is the original Lakaja Fall, of course. And then I I stayed in L.A. after it it, it um, closed. And while I was there, I, I started studying with a great acting teacher, Don Houghton, who whose philosophy, which came from the actor studio, was about being a messenger and about embracing the idea of being a messenger. And I didn't really kind of fully understand what that really meant. And then I was asked to audition for this play in New York by my L.A. agent. I said, I really don't want to go back to New York. I'm, I was doing a lot of bit parts in TV shows and, and, and uh, movies, extra parts and, and, and one-line parts in movies. And so I was making a living, and I was happy to do so. But I said, well, I'll read the script. And the script was delivered on a, on a Monday. And by Tuesday, I was borrowing money from my parents to fly myself to New York to audition for this incredible opportunity. The reason why I did so was because I had never read a play, one, with an Asian person's surname written on the first page as the author of the play, and I had never written, read one. No, I, I may have done that, but certainly not one that was being produced on Broadway, and certainly not one to, through which I identified so greatly. I, I was ripping the pages out of the script as I read it understanding and in a way that I hadn't really understood before, not only the themes of the play that David Wong was discussing as an Asian American man, as an American man in, in, in kind of American popular culture or Western popular culture, but also I understood what Donald was talking about, how you could be a messenger and how you could embrace the author's vision and words and bring them to life with your, your part of the equation, which is your voice, your talent, your 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 ability to play a character. And so I I plunged myself into the audition for this role with a with a sense that I was the that I was that I it was right, it was my part for some reason. I just I just felt it in my heart that it was it was and I was kind of fully prepared to not get it knowing that but I also had that feeling. I just, oh, I just know this is... If if I don't get it, it's because I don't see it, and that's possibly okay. But I can see it. I can see it so clearly in a way that I haven't felt um, as vividly, perhaps, my whole whole life. I feel that way a little bit about Herringbone. But um, I felt that definitely about this. And so I, I went, and the whole audition process, the getting the part, and the... rehearsal process and the opening of the play and the run of the play changed me from a person who kind of kept the this this um, acknowledgement of my cultural background at bay to a person who kind of it kind of 
synthesized in some way through the through the performing of the play, and it it helped me greatly to kind of get over myself, and to to re reevaluate the kind of work that I should look for and the kind of work that I should be doing. Well, as Howard indicated, the character you played was a man who dressed as a woman, acted in Chinese opera as as a female because women, real women, were not allowed to appear on Chinese stage yes. back then. And this person ha- has a love relationship with a French diplomat yes. and is also becomes a spy. Yes. Um, David Henry Wong, who wrote it, wasn't really aware of it until at a cocktail party he told us on this program. Somebody told him the story about, in real life, how this had really happened. Yes. And he became so interested in that he wrote the show. Yes. Were you at all aware of the real-life situation before you saw the script? Absolutely not. I didn't know anything about it. I, th- I believe it's quite possible that in the first or one or two pages of the script that was sent, David included a three-line um, article, I mean, a very short little blurb that was in the New York Times about this couple. And that was, aside from this cocktail party conversation, he had part of the inspiration for the play as well. And that three-line description would make anybody write a play actually and you know mm. I mean, it's, it's it's just like what kind of kind of kind of a description and that was my first introduction to them and to the play the play of course is a great departure from the the mundane facts of their of their real life and much more of a discussion philosophically about a lot of other things um but it was that was my first introduction to them through that You've spoken of your identity, certainly, and Butterfly is a play about identity. In taking on that role, you went from being Bradley or Brad yes. to becoming BD. Yes. And that's the name you stuck with. Was yes. that just a choice for the role? Did that change who you were at all? Wow. Did that change who I was at all? Nobody's ever <laughs> asked that. Um they ask a lot about the you know the the facts of the of the transition and the facts of the transition were really it just all happened quite naturally Stuart Ostro you know incredibly wonderful producer who produced in Butterfly um, came to me early on in the process after I had been cast and asked me if I would take in some way take the gender out of my name for the playbill and I loved the idea of it, and I was thrilled to do so. I think he suggested that I just be B or something like that. And it, it, BD is my, my, not only are my initials, but my father's initials and my brother's initials as well. And so BD was my dad's nickname when he was growing up. I was more than happy to take it on as a name. I thought, it, I thought of it as a real name, so I didn't feel that compromised. And so I did it. It was a great thing because... Um, Stuart's instincts were right. People didn't know that I was really a man. Um, a, a, a high percentage of the audience did not know I was a man in that play. Don't ask me how that we pulled that off because it's right in the play that he's a man in the beginning of it. But they just seemed to kind of get on this train of of believing her in such a way that they were truly shocked at the end of the play when he reveals himself to be a man. And so... Uh, the play was a great success, partly because of that main phenomenon, and, but partly because of the great writing and David's ideas that had never been discussed before. And the name stuck. I mean, I, I couldn't really say, oh, by the way, I'm not really called that anymore. It just didn't seem natural to do that. And so I was happy to kind of keep it 
as my name. And, and then I realized that I had two names because then I had my family and all my friends calling me my old name. And then I had all these new people and, 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 and a whole new world of things. And so I decided to kind of eschew my old name um, because I wanted to have one name. And it didn't seem practical to go back to the old name, so I, I stuck with my new name. And and then I went through a long period of time where I was very specific about, oh, no, please don't call me by my old name because it makes people uncomfortable because it makes people think that some people are closer to me than other people. And I, I didn't like that strange dynamic. People that had an odd knowledge that of what my old name was would say, call me that to ingratiate themselves to me, even though they didn't know me. And that was very strange. And so I, I said, no, we're going to stick with this. And and I and it's my name. So I went and had my passport and my, my um, driver's license changed. And, and, and so that's my name. And it's all my credit cards and all of that stuff. And so um, just recently I've had, you know, I just kind of become Brad again in a very casual way, in a very casual way, and it feels natural and it feels right. So did even your family then start calling you BD? Yeah. My dad yeah. definitely went for it, really went he, for he it. He was probably really thrilled to have yeah. a BD up yeah. on stage. My mom never really has been that behind it, but my mm-hmm. dad and my brothers have gotten behind it. Some of my nieces call me Uncle BD, which is which is really cute. <laughs> and um, and so it just, it, 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 it's it's a funny thing. I never thought of myself as a person. You know, I don't like a lot of fancy name stuff. Like, I, I, I used to make fun of people that had issues with their names or changed their names or whatever. And here I was. I became a person that changed his name. And so I, you know, have a different perspective on that now. Though you'd been working for years, when you burst on the scene with a role that gets you as much attention as the role in M. Butterfly, I'm wondering whether subsequently... That posed new challenges for you in being cast. Oh, it was unquestionably challenging, unquestionably disappointing. Unquestion. I mean, I can say now um, that I feel that I have a very three-dimensional career. I can say that there was a a, a, a real frustration in in trying to explain and um, promote who it was that I really. Am as a performer and as a as a persona and a, and as a as an actor, and I and I think that to tie it all together, I think that's one of the reasons why I have followed Herringbone down this long, long road, and that is because it is Herringbone that makes me feel accessed in a way to the um, not superior but really unique things that I do. Um, you know that serves that this this play serves those things that I do in a way that only uh, the you know M Butterfly really kind of did you know you know in a way that I I could really um, be enlivened by. Other things have definitely done that in my career, and I have no complaints about my career in, in its in its overreaching kind of you know I'm I'm very lucky to be a working actor and I and I love it and I. And I and I, I love something about every project that I do, um, but there was something so unique about that role that it was just too hard to top, and it was very hard for people to kind of put me in an, in what I would consider a normal role, um, and there was also a racial barrier, which was really difficult. So there was a kind of there was a bit of a homophobic kind of thing going on because the play was so kind of. Jen, you know, she was such a convincing woman that people thought I couldn't 
play a man. They they were always asking, you know, and in fact, I played a man in the third part of the play, which is that contrast, which was part of the success of the production in some ways. They forgot it or they couldn't see it. They were too, um, f- I, I want to say freaked out. Uh, you know, they were a little freaked out by my convincingness as a woman. They didn't, at that time, maybe we were discussing these these nuances of gender less and that there was there was more of a kind of a line between men and women and and you know and now we're we're a little bit more comfortable talking about sex and gender and roles and things like that in a way that we weren't then and and so that's what made the play powerful and potent but it also made trouble for me because people couldn't really grasp what it was that I was doing um that's my perception of it you know i i I didn't get to play um, a handful of roles that I would think you might think would come to me because there was a kind of a stigma around me in some ways. Interesting to hear you say that because for that role in M. Butterfly, you are the only actor ever to be honored with the Tony Award, Drama Desk Award, Outer Critics Circle Award, Clarence Derwent Award, and Theater World Award. You would think that They'd just be banging on your door saying, we want you to be in the show. Yeah. So it's kind of surprising to hear you say how how people had typecast you for this one role. Yeah, I do. I mean, I got a lot of, you know, kind of psycho-serial transvestite parts on cop shows, you know, like Hmm. the guy who cracks at the end. Remember that movie... With, with Michael Caine and Angie Dickinson. Um, the Dressed Brian, to Kill. Dressed to Kill. Parts like that, you know, mm-hmm. like the crazy psycho. And that, that role, uh, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, bears no resemblance to the um, butterfly role. And yet that's, that's where they go. That's where they went. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't get offered that part, but I got offered mm-hmm. parts like that mm-hmm. on cop shows and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know how to explain it. You know, it is a very interesting business. It is a very it is always and always will be about um your latest success and what you've done most recently and and trying to kind of continue to reinvent yourself and to 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 um I don't know, be clear about what you're going after and about what it is that who it is that you are. And I think also as a young man, I wasn't as clear about who I was. I, I feel a lot clearer about that now, about saying, oh, yeah, I need to do this. And I think that that karma, if you will, has brought me to a place where a theater like McCarter is is unquestionably offering me the opportunity to, to perform a one-person show there. Um, in some ways, a sight unseen. They they took me and agreed to do this show, and, and, and they knew that I was had a reputation for being successful in the part and stuff like that but you know it was it was partly because i'm a i'm a slightly different person maybe maybe it's very complicated it's a lot there's a lot of different things at play i think well m butterfly was 1988 your next broadway role was five years later 1993 face value how did you get into that show then did they call you did you go after that oh that was very interesting face value was the first play that david wrote uh david huang wrote uh, uh, it was his second Broadway show, but it was the first play that David wrote, has written of two uh, uh, that references the Miss Saigon controversy. 
um, Miss Saigon controversy was a, a controversy over the casting of Jonathan Price, uh, a, a Caucasian British actor who was cast as in an Asian role um, in, in, in the original production of Miss Saigon, played the part in the West End, and then when he came to the United States to play the part, a lot of Asian American actors protested and uh, caused a tremendous um, uh, kind of uh, event in American kind of Broadway history. Uh, he wrote a play about that controversy and created the role of, a, of an actor who... Um, was one of the actors protesting the role. And it was loosely based on the relationship that I had had with him throughout that controversy. Ironically enough, I auditioned for this part and I could not get um, Jerry Zaks to cast me in the part, um, which was basically kind of my story in some ways. Some, you know, Not really, but kind of. And it was a, fu- it was a really funny irony that I was not cast in that part. And um, my agent at that time in a way that he really never ever said in a, in with such passion said just wait just wait just wait and they found themselves in trouble in in um Boston in their tryout and I got called to replace the actor who was who was um uh they were going to let go and I ended up coming in and rehearsing for 2 weeks and and playing one week of previews the play was so troubled that it, um, the production was so troubled uh, that it closed before it even opened. Um, but the process of auditioning for a part, you know, I was probably extremely stressed out about the whole concept of playing a role based even remotely, you know, and in minute way on your, on, on anything you've done. And here I was auditioning for the part, uh, and so that must have caused some kind of crazy tension that not allowed me to not be funny or or, or successful in the part. Who, who knows what it was? Um, but uh, it was an interesting uh, event in my uh, career. It, it's just an interesting kind of thing that I will always remember, that event, that crazy two, three weeks. I got really sick. I was really sick during the previews. I could barely stand up during the tech rehearsal. Um and it was just a crazy event. So a quick question to follow that. Uh, about a year or two ago, yes. David Wong wrote Yellow Face, yes. in which he wrote partially about the controversy, partially yeah. about face value. And you were portrayed in it. Yes. <laughs> what was the experience of seeing yourself portrayed, even briefly? It was not fun. Really? I will tell you. And, I would, and I'm, now I'm saying it on the radio because, uh, you know, after, I told David afterwards, oh, it was great. I, mean, I enjoyed it. But it's never fun. That kind of thing. You know, like, for example, the, the times that I would liken this to are, uh, the other time that I remember feeling this way was when I went to see two, th- three times. They're all related to David, unfortunately. Um, one of them is seeing the M. Butterfly parody in Forbidden Broadway <laughs> and being in there and having everybody turn in the audience <laughs> to watch you watch mm. it. And then being at the screening for the M. Butterfly film which I was not in and having everybody in the audience see me walk into the room and watch me watch the movie. Mm-hmm. Didn't like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what this was like. And that's why it's unpleasant. It's not unpleasant because of Francis Chu's hilarious performance. Uh, he was wonderful in it. He's a good friend of mine. We had a good laugh over it. 
um, he, you know, he, there's nothing he could do that would offend me or change my opinion of him or change my opinion of David, you know, him portraying me. That was not the issue. The issue was the self-consciousness of being in the room. And that's what's so great about the live theater is that it's a bunch of live people watching a live performance. But um, it kind of comes to haunt you in a way when you're sitting there and you feel everybody's too aware of you rather than what's going on on the stage. Well, let's go to something that's hopefully a little bit happier. From the one, oh, extreme- it wasn't that unhappy, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's just a kind of a a a, 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 a curious mm-hmm. psychological thing to experience. Yeah, I didn't mean to make it sound like so miserable. <laughs> well, from the one extreme of playing a transvestite spy in uh, M Butterfly yes. to playing Linus in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, yes. that must have been a fun experience for you. It really was. I had, like I said earlier, I had done it when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually had done it with that young woman who was the one who got me to be that in the first tryout. Her, her parents' theater company was doing it, and they had a, a they needed a Linus, and so I did the part then. And I felt a connection to the part when I auditioned for Michael Mayer to do the, to the um, to do the Broadway revival, and um, it was a great experience. It was, it was, full of really hard work. It was a really hard out of town tryout. Um, I have personal memories of it. It was right around the time that I was deciding to become a parent, and it was a lot of f- personal fun going on at that time related to that. Um, and it was... Um, that's, that came out totally wrong. <laughs> that's not <laughs> what I meant. I became a parent through surrogacy, so that was the technical aspects of surrogacy, not the fun of, of attempting to become a parent. Anyway, um, and it was... Um, it was fun material. It was really, really fun, buoyant, brightly colored, um, uh, sparkling kind of production. And working with people like Roger Bart and Kristen Chenoweth yes. and Anthony Rapp must have been it was quite fun, too. It was a very fun um, ensemble. Maybe similar to the ensemble that I described before where everybody trusts everybody and, and is having a good time and knows what everybody's going to do and, and f- knows how they fit into the equation. That was really fun. Earlier on, you spoke, not entirely glowingly, of uh, Flower Drum Song. So I am curious about your experience doing Pacific Overtures. Ah, well, let me... Very different piece of material. Yes, a very different piece of material. But I I thank you for bringing that up, because I I should clarify why I would respond in that way. It's not Flower Drum Song itself, per se, that... um, that I was re- what, that I was alluding to, it was the inevitability of Flower Drum Song as the one show that you can do mm-hmm. as an Asian American. Have you ever done Flower? When did you do Flower Drum Song? When did you do The King and I? Well, I haven't actually ever done either of them. Um, oh, really? You know, that's really kind of a funny thing. Because you it's know, just sort of expected. It's, it's totally expected. Jews should have all done Fiddler yes, on the Roof. Of course, exactly. When did you do that? And and so there's a kind of a it kind of sticks in one's craw about that. There's a there's a love hate really, and I'm sure David talked about this. There's a love hate relationship that all Asian Americans have with with Flower Drum Song. I believe my parents loved it and hated it. They were so proud of it. It was an incredible project. The movie came out. The movie had all Asians in it. It was it there was nothing defaming about it. And yet, as a result of that, they were able to forgive some of the kind of. Um, Racist is a strong word, but kind of um, 
quaintness that that the Caucasian writers had kind of infused into the the project and the the kind of condescension of it and all of that, um, because they were, we were so grateful. So Pacific Overture, so Pacific Overture also Caucasian writers, also Caucasian writers of a. Of a, of, of a different breed, I would say. I mean, not, not of a different quality necessarily, but, but of a different kind of, um, uh, of an agenda. The original production of Pacific Overtures was one of the things that made me want to become an actor. I was, I was in San Francisco having all of these debating conversations with my parents and with my drama teacher. The, t- the tour came into town after closing on Broadway. Um, it was in an unprecedented way, something like 36 Asian-American actors on stage. So where was the argument that there was no opportunities for an Asian-American young man who wanted to become a a Broadway actor? Um, It was kind of blown out of the water. And not only that, the original Hal Prince production was incredibly inspiring, um, gorgeous. Uh, It was just such a sense of pride in a different way for those actors that were in it and and certainly for me as a as a as a young aspiring actor watching it i chased mako who played the reciter down the street with my playbill and i got him to sign it um it was the probably the only time i'd ever done that in my life um having some kind of feel or aspiring to some kind of kindred connection to him and then 28, 34 years later, I forget how many years it was, the, the, the revival, I'm playing his part and, 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 and playing his part in a, in a company of all Asian American actors and actresses who all have a very similar um, point of view about being an actor. Our, our, act, our, our careers are all um, uh, united by a similar experience. And so being in a, in a show that's got all Asian Americans in it is a really rich experience because there's a great shorthand, great sense of humor, a great sense of um, pride, and um, a really strong sense of solidarity and brotherhood that uh, you've, is very rare, in, in, even in the theater, which is all, already full of brotherhood and, and um, camaraderie. This was extremely rare and wonderful um, to be able to play that part you know during Mr. Sondheim's uh, life is, is an incredible gift and I I soaked up every second of it um, the production was directed by you know a, a Japanese a Japanese national director um, uh, who brought a whole cultural um, experience to the American company that we were you know, very grateful to have. It had a very interesting point of view, and um, it, it was a a truly memorable um, kind of experience. Uh, not only just professionally, but personally. And so, I'm looking at the clock. We've pretty well gone through the oh, hour. Oh no, really? So it brings us back to the present. Currently, <laughs> through is it October twelfth? October twelfth. Yes. At the at the uh, McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey. Yes. B.D., thanks so much for being with us today Thank on you Downstage guys. Center. Yes, much appreciated. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks, B.D. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you.
The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.